0: We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from 0 to 1, weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want
1: to learn more. Hope to see you there. Action is really, really important for our health and our world right now. It's not just, oh, some people are activists and some aren't. I think we each, in our own ways, if we want to feel whole, need to feel our anger, need to feel our caring, and need to, in some way, bring our love into action.
0: Our guest today is a psychologist and meditation teacher. She earned her Ph.D. in clinical psychology, lived in an ashram for 10 years, and completed her Buddhist teacher training at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. She has beautifully integrated Western mental health with mindfulness and heart practices into her psychotherapy trainings and meditation teachings. She founded the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., which is currently one of the largest non-residential meditation centers in the U.S. She's a popular podcast that offers talks and guided meditations. And her words are powerful. They're healing and inspirational. And she brings social justice around racial inequality and environmental sustainability to the forefront. We're so excited to have her on the pod. Welcome, Tara Brock.
2: So, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on our podcast.
1: Well, I am really excited to be with both of you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
2: Yeah. So, how have you been doing during this challenging time in our world?
1: Well, it's a beautiful opening question because how are we doing? (laughs) You know, it's, um, Mm. I'm in a a pretty privileged bubble in the sense that I am, you know, myself feeling healthy and very close in folks are healthy. Um, And, you know, my, my son and his family is living right between two of the big fires in California. So their world is filled with smoke. And Mm -hmm. my daughter-in-law who's very pregnant is, uh, you know, has been working on the front lines at a hospital as a labor and delivery nurse. And, you know, so I, so I'm holding with, you know, both close people with with worry and concern, but even beyond that, our world is hurting. So it's, it, you know, our nervous systems are feeling it, and I'm definitely feeling it.
0: They really are, yeah. How have you been managing? How have you been coping with the stress?
1: Well, it, a couple of ways. I mean, part of it is the normalizing, you know, it's just like, I feel like my reactions are... Appropriate, like feeling afraid for our world, feeling, a di- you know, the deep disturbance of what's happening to the our larger body, the earth, is. Um, it feels like it, I should be upset, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. feeling uh, feeling the the horror at what happens in terms of uh, racial injustice. So. In a way, the things that come up, the first response is okay. This is a human heart, body, mind that's feeling what it needs to be feeling, and then the trick is not to get hijacked, you know, not to get trapped in it. And that's where you know, meditation and being in nature and exercising and uh, and talking to people and being real, you know, those yeah. that all helps me stay connected.
0: I love that. I feel like it's a, it's a fine balance between when you're feeling hijacked and overwhelmed and when you numb out. Because um, I've also noticed myself and my clients, there's also a way in which all of this becomes overwhelming. Like reading the news every day, you start to tune out at times because it feels just like this is too much.
1: You know, Simone, that is such an important point because that's part of the big danger too. Um Certainly that happens with the despair around the climate and uh, the earth, is that we? it just feels like too much, so we get desensitized. But it also happens around COVID. It's like, okay, now we're getting used to the fact of COVID. So in some way it feels not so alarming. And then we forget that, you know, so many people are being crushed, especially the non-dominant population. So, we get desensitized because we're not immediately facing something and then lose the kind of care that will keep us more active and engaged. So, I, lo- so I really love that you brought up the numbing because I think we swing in both ways.
2: Right. I was, I was talking to my mom who's in Copenhagen recently and telling her about what it was like in New York right now. And she's like, you know, I'm curious, like how, what was it like in in March, April, where you never really talked about like, we talked about how you were doing, but not so much about the city. And I'm like, well, you know, like 30,000 people died. And she started crying. And I was so upset about it too, in that moment talking to her, but I realized like it hadn't really registered, right? Like being in the experience, I think I was pretty numbed out for most of it. And it's only now kind of reflecting back that stuff is coming up.
1: It's uh, what you're saying about the numbers too because we can hear numbers Mm -hmm. and our hearts don't engage with numbers. We engage when somebody close in and we see the picture or feel the feelings that they're having. Mm-hmm. And um, now the reporting is just this bombardment of numbers and, and we don't, I don't think we take it in.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm wondering, just to give us a, a little bit of a background on you, and of what brought you to meditation and your spiritual practice. What's kind of been your journey to getting where you are today as a, as a primarily a meditation teacher?
1: Yeah, well, I had a, a little bit of an unlikely beginning in the sense that I was in college and I was planning to go to law school and a social activist, you know, grew up in a very progressive family. And, you know, so I would go to these uh, meetings of people that were planning different, you know, initiatives and p- protests and this and that. And and then I'd go to my yoga class, <laughs> and I realized that um, there was so much anger and so much hatred in the kind of um, political organizing side of things, and it really hit me that we can't create the world that we believe in and long to have out of that angry us and them energy. So I actually shifted gears, and I didn't go to law school. I instead. Uh, Moved into a, a yoga ashram and <laughs> practiced yoga and meditation and lived in an ashram for ten years and um, wow wow
2: <laughs> what was that like ten years
1: <laughs> ten years yeah well it was it was a very very disciplined kind of extreme ashram and we did like we'd get up at three thirty in the morning and do a lot of yoga and meditation for two and a half hours and worked in. And community businesses, and um, you know, it was very, it was, it was very intense, and it was exciting and edgy, and and you know, we felt like you know we were waking up, and we were idealistic, and we were going to help the world, and I'm sure you know, good things came out of it. I found it became too rigid, so I I left the ashram, and then. Um, Found my way to Buddhist meditation, so I started going to retreats and started. I was teaching yoga when I was in the ashram, and then I shifted to teaching meditation. And so I have, you know, I have my, my roots in both yoga and meditation, love them both, but I have, even, I have deep roots in social activism, which I've returned to, but with a different kind of consciousness and a different sense of how we need to go about things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So much of your activism seems to be rooted in the idea of self-compassion. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, like why why self-compassion is so important in, in making changes, important changes in our world.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and it makes me happy that Black Lives Matter is actually very rooted and that right, right at the center is their message of self-care too. It's that we have to love ourselves. That, you know, the suffering in the world... I like the way Mother Teresa puts it. She says that we are suffering because we forget our belonging to one another. And in mm. a deep way we forget our belonging, the, a sense of that we are we come from this earth and we belong to these bodies and these hearts and these minds and each other and all beings. Like That that's the essence and when we forget we get afraid and that leads to violence and addiction. So the healing We have to reconnect and one of the first places of reconnection is stop the war against ourselves. Um, We cannot be intimate, helpful and um, have healthy relationships with others if we are turned on ourselves with with hatred or a a deep sense of shame or judgment because we are always going to think, well that other person couldn't really like me, you know. It's like, they might like me for this moment, but as soon as they find out, you know, they won't. And so it creates that deep sense of separation that leads to, as I said, that leads to violence. So I really do believe that befriending our inner life, um, learning to pay attention and listen and, and be kind towards what's going on inside us is a prerequisite to beginning to make the bridging and the healing that's that's needed in our world.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about our work in psychotherapy and it's just like how you framed it is so at the core of what I feel like so much of the work we do in therapy is, in couples work, in individual work, but like to help couples kind of get to a place where they can say like, can you accept and love me where I am? And in individual work, you know, can I accept and love me where I am? And if you can get there, it's transformative. And so I'm just like thinking of that parallel and also your um, background in, in mental health and wondering, you know, if you pulled from your training in psychology to bring this into meditation.
1: Very much. And I pulled even more basically from my own experience of being at war with myself you know yes (laughs) as we all are yeah yeah i mean i i the wake up was very um severe when i realized you know i was hiking with a friend in college and she said you know i'm learning to be my own best friend and i thought to myself oh my god i'm the last thing for my own best friend and i spent that whole time (laughs) camping thinking of you know the 10,000 ways i tore myself up daily you know for not being mm. a good friend to others not being a good daughter not you know doing everything i could at school having my body was too heavy my this my that <sighs> so that was kind of seminal realizing that if i wanted to be happier i really needed to befriend myself and i over the years, I came to call it the trance of unworthiness, because so many of us we might know that we judge ourselves, but we're not always aware of how that sense of deficiency you know that sense something's wrong with me, how much it it it's a toxin that affects everything we do, so at work, we can't take risks because some deep down we're assuming we're going to fail or we can't really be vulnerable and open with others because we're afraid if we're undefended, they'll see something wrong with us. And um, so I, that's become a real central piece in my teaching. And uh, what I found was that, and I wrote about it in Radical Acceptance. It was my first book. Was that if we can even get that we're in that trance, if we can start seeing, okay, the, it's first of all, it's pervasive. It's not just me, but this is a trance that I'm in and it's really keeping me from having a happy life, if we can see that, then we can begin to undo it. And Mm so I I put a lot, you know, I've kind of taken a lot of the teachings of meditation and Buddhist psychology and Western psychology and woven them together. And actually each of my books is in some way um, bringing together meditation and psychology to help free us from that trance and help free us to really love each other without holding back I mean, that's really what, that's really the intention and, and to really discover in a spiritual way uh, who we really are, to discover the, the awareness and the love that's really our source beyond any personality so, so yeah, I, I appreciate your question because that's been a that's been probably the central theme in everything I've been doing
2: I feel like um, the struggle with self-compassion and the, the harsh inner critic is probably one of the number one reasons people come into therapy, even if they can't identify it as being the core issue. You know, it's so, so much of um, depression and anxiety has to do with this, this uh, harsh voice we all have towards ourselves. And I, I wonder how you, how you help people move into a more compassionate place like what in your experience have you found has been useful um in helping people to do that because as a therapist it's hard i find it (laughs) very challenging right to move move people into a more compassionate place it's 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 very difficult to. You know, it's a, pin- and trenched- a parallel
0: process, too, when we're feeling critical of not helping the other person to move from criticalness. I know, but- then it's like, I'm a terrible therapist. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> Maybe we both need to do this work together.
1: <laughs> no, it's contagious, you're right. You know, and plus, when we're self critical, we're not as um, truly compassionate. We can't hold a container for others in in an authentic way. So, um, I, I know with my husband and I, we are so aware that you know when we get into some tightness that we both need a certain amount of time out to come back with ourselves and be able to sense what's going on and hold our own being with self-compassion. Um, there is a meditation that, that I teach, the RAIN meditation, which is an acronym that is really helpful when we are stuck. The the truth is that when we get stuck in an emotional reaction, it could be self-hatred or it could be fear or whatever, anger, those are the times we most need to pause and be able to meditate and come back to ourselves and those are the times we absolutely have no idea how to find our way home. I mean, we're we're all scrambled, I mean, that's when we've been hijacked by the limbic system and we need to reconnect with our, our frontal cortex, we don't know how. So RAIN is four very easy-to-remember steps that can help to bring us back home. And home includes self-compassion. And the steps go like this. They're, the first is recognize, which means, let's say my husband and I are you know, in some sort of a tense disagreement and we're both feeling angry and I go off on my own and I sense recognize. Okay, recognize that I'm feeling anger. And then, if I, and then the next step of RAIN is allow, that's the A of RAIN, which means I just let it be there. It's okay that it's there. It's like the weather. It's okay that weather appears or I sometimes think of it like um, it belongs. That's what I'll say to myself, like a wave in the ocean. So A is allow. I is investigate, which means I begin to go deeper and say, oh, okay, is there anything under that anger, and feel it in my body. And usually what I'll find under the anger is a sense of hurt. And I'll find even under the hurt is a sense that in some way I'm deficient. (laughs) So it does, uh, as, as you said, it does usually come down to that, some sense of my own failing. And then, so that's the, the eye of rain, and you. And importantly, the investigation is somatic. You you have to feel it in your body. I mean, the issues are in the tissues, and if we don't connect with the way emotions feel in the body, we can't transform them. So investigate, and I usually put my hand on my heart while I'm investigating to keep my attention there and to um, begin to offer some gentleness. But the end is where we nurture. And a self-nurture, and if you've exp- and if I've let's say already experienced this sense of hurt and the sense of deficiency, I'm much more able to be tender towards myself. It's very hard to pull out self-compassion if we haven't touched into our own pain. But if we touch into our pain and really sense, oh my gosh, I'm really feeling sunk in this, and you know how long, how many times have I felt deficient, and how has it affected my life? You know, since a young child, and wow it 's cut me off from so much, then compassion comes in the end, nurture we actively offer compassion to ourselves, so it might be again the the hand on the heart, the light, gentle touch, and um, which is really evokes a sense of self care. It might be a message it's okay, sweetheart, you know you 're okay, trust yourself, trust your goodness, something. Mm-hmm. But the nurturing is really critical for some transformation. And then I, what I call after the rain is those moments afterwards when I sense what shifted, that I'm no longer caught in that sense of an angry or deficient person. I'm now resting in a much larger, more spacious, creative, tender, caring presence. And so what I find is when I've done that, when I've gone off and had my own time to do that, it can be just a few minutes, it doesn't have to be really long, then I can reflect on him and it's much easier to see him through the eyes of wisdom and to see, oh, he's angry, he must feel defended or scared about something or feeling like he's losing something or that he's not feeling good about himself. What's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. So then when we get together, if we both have done that, we're much more able to speak in an undefended way from our vulnerability versus from blame and find our way to healing. In fact, we have a a kind of joke, which is that the first one who can roll reverse wins. (laughs) 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 And what it means is the first who can see it through the other's eyes actually is able to help hold the space for us to kind of come back home together. And that's what self-compassion does. It helps you to then look through another person's eyes.
0: I love that. That's so beautiful. And those are such clear steps that are so transformative and healing. And I, and I really hear the way that it transforms the relationship to the self, but then also what you're saying is that it really helps to connect more deeply with others.
1: Exactly the yeah. same. As soon as you have held yourself with kindness, That same space of kindness actually can include another person, and that is such a gift.
2: And it seems like just like um, the self-critical parts can be contagious, self-compassion can also be contagious.
1: Exactly, exactly. Once your heart gets soft, it creates a message to others, and we are biologically designed to resonate in these ways where we pick up from each other, oh, it's safe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's also so hard to be angry at someone who's showing you love. You know, it's interesting because I I just worked with a couple yesterday where they have a game kind of similar to what you and your husband are doing, but whoever hugs first in an argument wins. And they describe this moment (laughs) where the female, the the wife in the relationship was so angry and her husband just comes over and just gives her a big hug and she completely forgets what she was angry about. She just kind of melts. <laughs> because really underneath it, like kind of how you described with rain, it's, it's oftentimes like I'm defective or they reject me. And if you feel that love, it's like that that is what the underlying kind of protest and yearning is.
1: It's exactly right. The unmet need is love. It has different, yes. it has different um, flavors. So when you're investigating with rain, one of the most powerful questions you can ask is, what does this place need? And sometimes the ver- the the flavor of love it needs is understanding. It needs to be seen and understood. Um, for one woman, she was doing rain with uh, fear uh, around COVID and around homeschooling her children and everything to come. And she did rain, and she got down to investigate. And you know, there's this real fear, and it needed, you know, what did it need? It needed to feel like she really just understood and was allowing it to be there. So when she nurtured, her nurturing was, thank you for trying to protect me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for trying to protect me. I'm okay right now, and thank you for trying to protect me. Mm -hmm. So nurturing Mm -hmm. is really about trying to tend to our unmet needs, and investigate helps us to find out what they are. And an important piece about nurturing is that doesn't have to be done by ourselves. Self-compassion doesn't mean that the ego self has to offer compassion to the even smaller self, you know. We can call on, in meditation, some larger sense of compassion and call it in. And that's a really powerful learning for a lot of people in terms of how to self-nurture, is that they might think of their grandmother who was unconditionally warm and tender, and just imagine her energy surrounding them, or they might call on their dog, you know, mm-hmm. I do, <laughs> you know. <laughs> our, our spiritual figure, or the earth and trees, you know, we can call on a larger so- source of loving and actually invoke it, you know, just ask it to just, you know, bathe us. And learning, when I work with people individually, helping people to learn their pathway to nurture, you know, what's the way that can work for you that you can practice feeling that that self-nurturing? Because whatever we practice gets stronger. You know, the neurons that fire together wire together. So, for me, I have, um, for years now, when I feel really stuck and I, I want nurturing, then my main source is some sense of a, kind of a larger, infinite field of of warmth and light and love that, you know, I would call the beloved and it's not personified, it's just formless loving and I'll just say, you know, please love me, you know, let me just feel this and and in calling it in and feeling uh, that bathe me, um, there's just a realization that I am that field of loving. It's not, it was never a part mm-hmm. for me but I needed to call on it to realize that and I have done it so many times now that that neuropathway has been really deeply, deeply grooved so it's very quick that I can access nurturing when I'm feeling stuck in a smaller place. Mm-hmm. So I consider this like a really powerful part of self-healing to find our, find our pathways to nurturing.
0: I mean, even as you're describing that, I like feel. I feel like my body tingled. <laughs> like the idea of just having this sort of loving presence of the universe, kind of poured over you, and and having it be so big and expansive. I mean, it's 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 like it fe- it sounds very spiritual, and I'm kind of I'm thinking about like how this um, ties into spirituality, or if you define this as spirituality.
1: Yeah, we could use the word. I think that. Everybody, in some way, intuits something larger and mysterious and formless and very, very full that that is holding this life. That we all, that because the truth is we belong to something larger, you know. Mm. And so I think we intuit it. Sometimes that intuition is very shut down by trauma. But we can reopen it. We can reopen that intuition. And sometimes it's almost by going through things rotely, by acting as if, that actually calls it forward. So I'll sometimes just say to people the way I'll teach them to find that pathway is to get them into the place where they feel really vulnerable and say, what, what, do you, what are the words you most wish you would hear and what would be the source you'd most want to hear it from? You know, and, and if there's not a particular source just imagine from the, the whole universe that it's coming in, it's bathing you, it's filling your cells and the spaces between your cells. So, I'll just have them experiment. And because it's already part of us, It comes alive. It's a way to wake it up. We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. moment was brought to you by non spelled n-o-n the sound meditation app for iphone where no two sessions are alike
2: i'm also wondering you know during this time and you mentioned uh some of the social justice work that you've done um during this time it seems like there's so much anger in society there's anger at the administration, Trump. There's anger about racial injustice. There's anger about climate. There's a lot of appropriate anger, actually. And I wonder how you help people who, act- you know, who are traumatized. There's a kind of collective trauma. Who feel also overwhelmed by anger, but also don't want to let go of the anger. Um, kind of how, how you help
1: people negotiate those
2: feelings
1: yeah. in them. So, a two, let me respond in two parts. First to the anger and then to the trauma, because some there's a lot of anger when somebody's not fully traumatized and there's also anger when we're traumatized. But right. um, we need our anger. It's really intelligent. So, as you said, you know, for us to feel angry is a healthy response to having a real uh, danger, and impediment in our world. And, but it's, it's, one of my friends says that anger is initiatory, but it's not transformative. Anger is initiatory, like it gets us into action, it's necessary, but it's not transformative. We then need to move beyond the anger to execute in a way that's going to create what we want. Because if we act out of the anger, then we just plant the seeds for the same kind of world that we <laughs> we have right now. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a good distinction. Yeah. yeah. So so then there's ways on well, how do you feel the anger and give it its you know voice and give it its place in the sun? But then how do you move beyond and step out of the, the clench of it? And again, rain is really powerful for this because if we recognize anger and we allow it, we say, okay, let it rip, and we just let you know, let it let our bodies feel it. Not to keep on circling through the the thoughts, because that'll just keep stirring it up. But then in investigate, I'll often ask the question, you know, if you weren't feeling angry right now, what would you have to feel that's under the anger that's difficult? Mm-hmm. And what most people find is under the anger, they're feeling afraid. Like for myself, when I uh, listen to podcasts that tell me the next huge uh, scandal that has to do with violating other people, with, with blocking our rights to vote, with that really um, ends up causing huge suffering to... To immigrants, whatever it is, and I get all stirred up and really angry, and I'll recognize and I'll allow it to be there. And as I investigate, I'll find under it is fear. And if I keep investigating, I'll find under the fear is a kind of grieving, like a real sorrow at at the pain of the world. And under the grieving is just pure care, that I care. Mm -hmm. And if I can get down to the care, then, and, and nurture, just nurture that care, just honor it, then when I act, and I am pretty active now, it's coming out of that caring. And I and what we see, and you can see it in, in brain studies, is that when you're caring, there's you have a lot more access to your intelligence, a lot more access to your compassion for other people, you have a lot more access to being your, all your executive functioning, you know when we're angry, we, we don't do so well. so that's I just sharing kind of a sense of the transition that if you're angry, it's because you care about something. Get down mm-hmm. to the care. mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So it also involves, similar to RAIN, kind of taking a pause and examining what is this, what's underneath this feeling.
1: In fact, anger. you could use RAIN. That's what I you use RAIN use for. Rain. Yeah, it's the, oh, inves- okay. it's the investigative RAIN. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And, when, and how, like, when people are acting from this place of care, because, you know, so many, I think, people also feel really helpless. Like, part of the fear, part of the anger is that helplessness. Like, how do you see moving forward with that care? I mean, I know probably it's per- different for everyone, but what what would that look like?
1: I think sometimes the intelligence of care will guide us to reaching out so that we're um, joining hands with other people. Because it's very overwhelming and we get very powerless if we feel like we're alone in something. But just knowing that you're with other people that care and... And, and some of the activities, acting with other people, it's less important that we're sure there's going to be some good outcome, because we never know that. But if we know that we're doing the best we can, we're holding hands and we're acting, and I think action is really, really important for our health and our world right now. Um, it's not just, oh, some people are activists and some aren't. I think we each, in our own ways, if we want to feel whole, um, need to feel our anger need to feel our caring and need to in some way bring our love into action and it could be just action of talking with people and trying to have that dialogue bring more understanding it could be and of course it's the action of voting we really really need to vote and um, whatever actions help as citizens of a country to bring back or try to rebuild what we call democracy, Um, but all different levels of reaching out to help other people. Because we, you know, there's all these studies now that show that when we, in in psychotherapy, the key pivotal point of change is self-compassion. That's, it's mm-hmm. absolutely key. Um, there's one evolutionary psychologist that said that we're not survival of the fittest, we're survival of the nurtured. We absolutely, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's, good. The, that's the ground level, you know, we need yeah. to, we need to that. And then we need to widen the circle because we belong to a world. And if we don't remember that, we're going to feel always scared. So to take action, to do whatever we can to bring some healing to our earth and, to our friend who's having a hard time or whatever level. So um, I very much believe in love and action. And when I wrote my most recent book, um, Radical Compassion, it really goes through the different elements of waking up our heart and then acting from an awake heart that actually bring true happiness and ease to us because we are participating as part of a larger whole
2: yeah that participating piece seems really important especially now i mean so many clients that that i see struggle with loneliness as well that's another huge theme just feeling isolated and alone i mean in new york city literally you know like right now quarantining in their apartment by themselves you know it's just a very um lonely and sad experience so that that piece around moving into action by reaching for others and community seems so important.
1: We need it. And what you brought up about trauma, that, you know, we're a PTSD society. I mean, really, there is, it's not just the rare few that have trauma. It's in all of us. You Just the way we're all racist. You cannot be in this society and not be imprinted in a, in our nervous systems with some level of Trauma. it might be that we experience it through the numbing processes, as you both have brought up. And some of us are hyperactivated. Some of us have the skills to be inside the window of, of, you know, having it managed. But it's wall-to-wall. And if there is trauma from our past that's more more acute, this is the time that it has been re-triggered. And you know that as therapists that... Um, it's It's absolutely the conditions for it being retriggered, and the, being alone is, is one of those circumstances. I know so many people that are struggling with the loneliness and with the resurgence of trauma.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also about the the kind of role of privilege too, and the way that privilege can create the shame and guilt. And that shame and guilt really causes people to pull back and disconnect and isolate, and then feel traumatized in that place. And actually, even though they're they really want to participate, they've blocked themselves off from it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, and that's particularly in the in those in the whole domain of anti-racism, that it's brought up. I mean, I do believe we're in a consciousness shift where there are many, many more people that are getting it, that are getting white privilege and getting white yes. supremacy and getting the wounds, that this is the deepest wound of our society here in the United States. And like you just said, Simone, if, if it brings up shame or guilt, we can get paralyzed. So, then, so we need to know that it's not my personal badness, it's just the air we've been breathing. It's, it's really not personal.
2: Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the work you're doing around anti-racism?
1: Yeah, I mean, this has been a, a major um, pain slash passion uh, for actually for decades, because mm. uh, my family, again, my, my father was a civil rights lawyer, and um, so it was very much, uh, I grew up in a milieu that was very sensitive, but in a way that gave me kind of a false credentialing. <laughs> it's like i it didn't even occur to me that I could be racist because, look, look at what my parents were like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But it's not true. And so these last decades I've been kind of unlayering it. And so part of it's been the personal work where I have been in white awareness groups, like for a year where we just examined you know, our own awareness and got familiar with the history of racism in this country. And I've been in mixed groups where we've done processes of who are we really and looking at our relationships. And then I'm now in a process of bringing in more and more teachers of color to both my own podcast and also a scholarship program to train teachers of color in meditation. And we we have a new cohort that we're starting in our meditation teacher training uh, next February. And we have... um, It's the most diverse cohort yet because we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars of scholarship money. And um, so bringing forth more teachers of color feels like a really important part of... uh, really changing the culture. Mhm. Mhm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I'm wondering too like just thinking about the last 6 or 7 months, I know for Cena and I, we've really started to think very differently about our work, about ourselves, about what we want. And I'm wondering kind of with everything that's been going on, like how do you see your work moving forward, and ha- and has the past seven months really changed the way you're thinking about what you want to be doing? I mean, I know you kind of mentioned it a little bit in your anti-racism work, but
1: yeah, how that's affecting you. Well, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, I'm aware of, you know, I am 67, and I'm aware of, you know, I don't know how much energy and time I've got, so this, is, this isn't just for the last six or seven months, but I'm definitely in one of those <laughs> Okay, what's the deepest, most important priorities? Where do I want to put my energy? Mm -hmm. And um, anti-racism is one big one. Mm -hmm. It it feels at the center of everything. I don't see how we can wake up to really, really wake up our heart if there's unseen biases that keep us separate from people. I, I think it just, it's not... It's, everybody, it's part of everybody's path, really, in my mind. And so to be able to keep on centering on that feels really, really important to me. And then um, it, I've mentioned the teacher training. There is such a need in our global society to have um, practices and teachings that help us to get intimate with our own hearts, listen inwardly, pause, so that we can then join hands and respond, not react, and create a different world. So we need teachers. There's a a huge need for... Teachers and and the demand is really there. And, I, and I, when I say teachers, I mean in businesses and organizations and medical, the medical world and the mental health and sports and every domain. Uh, and there's a lot going on. And the more that's going on, the more there's a demand for teachers. So um, so the teacher training is the other big mm-hmm. one. Anti racism, the teacher training, and then just an ongoing, you know, on, more online. Uh, of teaching versus, uh, traveling around, uh, partly because it's just better for my, for my health to not be traveling around. That makes sense.
2: So I have a question that's more sort of a basic question about meditation. Cause I think a lot of, um, our listeners and, and also certainly, um, friends and clients that I have, um, talk a lot about, um, sort of getting curious about what is the purpose of meditation, and also if somebody is curious about starting a meditation practice, like, you know, how to, how to do that. And, um, um, you know, in addition to that, also I think a lot of people find meditating difficult in the beginning, and, and sort of like, how do you get buy-in from people, and how do you teach them? how to become meditators? This is a big question, but just sort of the basics of meditation, right? Because I think a lot of people are curious about meditation, but they don't really know how to begin.
1: Yeah, no, it's great. And I, I actually, I love that question being out there because um, meditation is so misunderstood. There are many, it's like exercise. It's like there's all these mm-hmm. different types of exercises within the word exercise. And a lot of times people get exposed to one kind of meditation and they assume meditation's not for me. Are they, yeah. are, they, are they get exposed to meditation and they find that their mind's wandering and they think, you know, I have too busy a mind for meditation, I'm not the type. Whereas if they ha- you know, stayed with it, they'd find out that everybody has a wandering mind. Everybody goes through that same doubt, like, I'm not the type. And it's the nature of the mind to be busy and there are ways and there's different styles for different people of quieting enough so that we can actually arrive right here and we're we we kind of race through our lives as if we're trying to get to the finish line you know and what's that mm-hmm. you know it's death and it, what about learning to pause and have this moment matter and really be able to take in the beauty and the wonder and the mystery and to really be intimate with another person we need to know how to pause to quiet a little we don't have to get rid of our thoughts but to quiet enough so there's a quality of spaciousness and here-ness and openness mm. so that's the the purpose of meditation is so that we can actually arrive in reality and, and inhabit our bodies and our hearts and our lives and really live uh, live from love, live more fully from who we are. And as for how to train, um, I invite listeners to my website, tarbrock.com, because there are thousands of free meditations and talks. And uh, one of the entries that a lot of people use is called Mindfulness Daily. It's a 40-day it's a program. It's 15 minutes a day. And it covers all the basics and the challenges and, and how to just set up a practice. And people find that really, really helpful. There also are a lot of basic meditations that if you don't want to do Mindfulness Daily, but you want something just to listen to, to guide you in... Um, they're there under introductory or basic meditation. So that's that's one way to consider. Also, the New York Times has a really great uh, evergreen section on meditation that, that offers a lot of different styles and, um, you know, FAQs and so on. So there's a lot out there. Yeah.
0: So this is a total a fan moment for a moment, because I have used your meditations, your guided meditations so much in my practice. And they have been the ones that have really helped me even to go into kind of my own silent meditations that building on your structure and your words has been really, really effective for me. And I have referred so many of my own patients to your website and your guided meditations. So I think they have are incredibly helpful. And I hope our listeners go go to your website and check it out.
2: Yeah, same. It's such a it's such a well done website, and with so many
0: resources for people. Yeah, and I love the way you talk about presence. You know, I think that's been really powerful, especially in my own work, and and kind of being able to really be embodied and being in the moment. Um, I think has been so helpful for me as a therapist, and I think what better way to kind of help others but to model it. Um, And the idea of being here and now, I mean, it sounds so basic, but it's difficult and it's really profound when you're there.
1: Well, I'm feeling even in this conversation, in a way you can kind of sense this, that there's a lot of presence that's the field the three of us are in, because I can feel the listening and I can feel the responsiveness. And some people say, well, you know, how am I supposed to be present if, you know, something's Something's going on and I don't like, why should I be present with it? And what I've found is that it's only if we are present with what's going on in the moment that we actually can respond to either pleasant things or unpleasant things, you know? And the biggest fear about self-compassion, you know, about being present with ourselves and being loving towards ourselves is, well, if I'm self-compassionate or if I'm accepting, I'll never change. But it's like the real it's it's a little counterintuitive, but Carl Rogers put it the best, I think he said it wasn't until I accepted myself just as I was that I was free to change. Mm-hmm. So this, this accepting presence is actually the prerequisite to really being intimate with others and living fully.
2: And being able to see ourselves more clearly. Think like you know when you're thinking about like the anti-racism stuff. It's really to to confront the parts that are racist, right, and to own them. But it's hard to do that if without self-compassion first.
1: You can't do it without. You can't. Do it. So yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. exactly right. Because right. I know for myself, I see these. I hear a voice in my head, I see images, I can't believe this stuff is programmed into me, but it feels personal and bad, and then I have to just with real compassion say, you know, Tara, this isn't your racism, this is the racism that lives through all our body minds, and be gentle, you know, mm-hmm. be gentle. And if you could yeah. see me, I actually have my hand in my heart as I'm speaking, because <sighs> it takes a lot of self-compassion to open to the shadow that is in all of us. Right,
0: right. And to open to understanding Mm -hmm. what it's like to be oppressed, what it's like for the other.
1: That's Mm -hmm. exactly right. And we won't do that until we have just been willing to open to what's going on inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. So what's next for you? What are things that you're working on these days? And what's kind of... Any new books coming up? Yeah. <laughs> I
1: actually do. I'm so excited to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a book coming out next spring called Trusting the Gold. Mm. And it's, it's basic. It's not different than what I've been talking about for, you know, 30 whatever years. But it's really based on the sense that when we're at war with ourselves, we really doubt and mistrust ourselves. and we don't see the goodness. We don't see that deep down we really want to love and be loved and we're seeking truth and we want to connect with each other. And so it's really a book of stories about my own life on what has helped me over time to trust the gold. And it's not like my gold, it's just the gold, (laughs) that goodness that's in me and both of you and all those that are listening and a taste of that, even a taste that Wow, just to be able to know that this is really who we are um, is so delicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, re- it really brings so much creativity and openness and aliveness into life when we lean towards trusting the gold.
0: Mm, what a beautiful title. Yeah, 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 excited for that book to come out. Oh, thank yeah. you. Well, you are doing such important work, and it's been so lovely and such an honor to talk with you. I've loved our conversation today, and we're so excited to to keep track of you and see what,
1: what you're up to next. Well, I feel the same about you too. I mean, you are bringing real goodness both through the podcast and also your work, and I feel us all in the same—we're in the same field holding hands, so it feels really yeah. good. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tara. Yeah, blessings to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode to stay in touch with us sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co where we share our favorite articles and resources about love sex and relationships also in future episodes we plan on answering listener questions so if you'd like your questions featured on our show send us a voice memo using the anchor app or send it directly to our email info at lovelink.co and if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time.
1: Mm-hmm.